<laughs> okay, so hello. Welcome back to another episode of the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition's podcast, AJCN in Press. Today, I have Dr. Brianna Stevenson with me. Brianna, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Hi, everyone. I am Brianna Stevenson. I am an assistant professor of biostatistics at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Uh, so my uh, research pretty much circles around statistical methods for nutrition epidemiology and some other areas as well. Awesome. So strap in, folks. There might be some math today. Uh, but today we're, we're here to talk about your newly accepted manuscript in the journal titled Racial and Ethnic Heterogeneity in Diet of Low-Income Adult Females in the United States Results from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Surveys 2011 to 2018. So that's a bit of a mouthful there, as people at AJCN or readers of AJCN know quite well. I think by this point, we love a declarative title that's quite specific. <laughs> uh, big fan of them myself personally, but there's a lot to unpack there. There's everything from racial and ethnic heterogeneity and how you guys quantify diet and what qualifies as low income and why Anne Haynes. So we have a lot to dive in here today. But just, you know, my first question is pretty much always on these podcasts. Why? Why this question? Why this topic? And, and how did you guys approach it? Yeah, so this kind of started out of the motivation to kind of unpack a lot of diverse populations. So um, oftentimes we'll have groups that sometimes can be ignored or excluded or just they're numerically outnumbered in the analysis that we do. And so really trying to unpack what those patterns may look like at a subgroup level. So um, one thing that we've noticed with cardiovascular disease research, oftentimes there's two or three levels of disparities that we see. One, we see disparities amongst females, um, and that's just a matter of a lot of the research when you kind of lump everything together, there are some female-specific risk factors that we might miss when we're lumping them together with males. Uh, the second layer of that is race and ethnicity. So when we're talking about diet, oftentimes racial, ethnic, racial and ethnic minorities happen to be disproportionately impacted with diet and its relationship to cardiovascular disease. And then the third is from the financial aspect of income. And so when I'm looking at low income and I wanted a data set that looked at females as well as had a lot of racial and ethnic heterogeneity, that's where N. Haynes came in, um, because it's one of the few data sets where it does really try to get a full landscape of the United States and really try to capture a variety of socioeconomic backgrounds as well as racial ethnic backgrounds. I chose the cutoff specifically at 2011 because that's when that's basically where we received the most heterogeneity amongst the different racial and ethnic backgrounds. So we had Mexican-Americans were now separated from other Hispanic-Americans. Similarly, Asian-Americans were now pulled away from this other category where we just kind of lumped everything together. Um, so that's kind of why I picked the NHANES data set. Taking a couple steps backwards, I mentioned about this, um, trying to capture these groups that are often excluded. Um, so as a statistician, oftentimes we go with all of these different analytical methods and what we end up finding is we get frustrated sometimes. So when we're looking at dietary patterns, um, one of the, the dietary pattern I've kind of built off from is the latent class model. So if you're not familiar with the latent class model, imagine you have a set of foods. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to unpack you into different patterns. So 
if you think of it almost like a cafeteria, so you could have a different lunch table for each of these different patterns. So everyone that sits at the lunch table with you, I'm expecting that across these lists of foods, you guys are all going to eat about the same, um, you'll eat from the same pick. So you'll eat, maybe you'll have the same amount of fruits that you'll eat, or you maybe eat the same amount of vegetables and grains and things of that nature. So each table has their own defining dietary pattern. The problem with this is realistically, if you're sitting at the lunch table, are you really going to eat exactly what everybody else eats? No. So that's one problem. The second problem we have is when we're looking at methods like the latent class model or even a factor analysis, you're, you're defining your pattern off what the majority is doing. And so the problem with that is when we're talking about the United States, our majority demographic typically are non-Hispanic white that live above the uh, poverty income level. And so with that majority, whatever your pattern is, it's going to reflect whatever they are doing. So you're going to miss a lot of those smaller sized groups that are still part of the larger pot, but we're not able to see it because, because they're not part of the majority. If they're not acting in accordance with the majority, we're not going to be able to identify those different patterns. So what I've done here is we've created an extension of the latent class model to kind of extend from this. So now what we're saying is, okay, we're not going to look at the majority. If we know already that race and ethnicity is playing a difference in different behaviors that we see um, for diet, then why don't we use that as a defining modifier of what we would want to see these diet patterns look like? So instead of lumping everybody into these large majority uh, patterns, we now have created this method, which is called the robust profile clustering method. And you can have three different scenarios from here. So let's say race and ethnicity does not play any difference in diet. So in which case it's going to look like the vanilla version of the latent class model that we have. And so you'll have the, the lunch tables as I mentioned before, where everyone's kind of eating the same thing and the tables will all look different. Or you might have the case where we do have race and ethnicity, ethnicity acting as a modifier. So in that case, what's happening is each of the different racial and ethnic groups that we have are going to have their own unique patterns. There's going to be no similarities across everybody, but you may have similarities within those race and eth ethnic groups. And then the third combination, the third option is you have some combination of both. So maybe you have some foods that everybody's eating, and then you have another set of foods that are very specific to this um, modifying demographic. Did I talk too much? Did that make sense? <laughs> no, I think that makes great sense. I mean, the way I'm visualizing it is like in the, the basic latent class model approach, like the racial ethnicity factor and the socioeconomic status factor are kind of getting lost and counted as noise. And you're kind of like trying to extract that out specifically here, removing it from that majority pattern and really kind of dig deep on it. Is that, exactly. is that a layman's? Yes. <laughs> so, so by first off reducing the, to just low income adult uh, females, and then from there looking at the racial and ethnic heterogeneity that exists between them. So um, this actually started from actually seeing a lot of that majority demographic driving the pattern. So I started with the regular latent class model. I got about five or six different patterns 
that I saw. And in each of the patterns, the majority makeup was non-Hispanic whites in each of the individual groups. And then I said, okay, well, what happens if I take that group out? What are my patterns going to look like? And they looked completely different. And I started to see a little bit more variety. And so that's kind of what motivated this decision of, okay, let's really look at race and ethnicity. Yes, I have this majority demographic of non-Hispanic white uh, females, and I still want to know information about them, but I also want to know information about those smaller sized groups. So being able to separate those apart, we're able to do that. So the results from this paper pretty much gave us that that second option of essentially what we had was very specific patterns that were bucketed within the racial and ethnic demographics. So it almost sort of looks like a stratified latent class model, which if you wanted to do a stratified latent class model, maybe you'll get the same results, but I think the problem you might have is the numbers. And so by using the RPC, which is the shorthand of robust profile clustering, by using the RPC method, you're able to borrow information. So you're not going to make any assumptions of whether it's going to be just a global, everybody U.S. pattern, a racial and ethnic specific pattern, or some combination of both. Taking it just a full step back, maybe. So this whole approach, I think a lot of folks are used to reading dietary patterns literature where it's like a predefined how adherent are you to a Mediterranean diet score and, and grouping like a pattern that way. Is it accurate to say that the approach that you're taking here is really letting the data fall out into its own patterns and then kind of binning it under how the patterns differ by uh, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status? Yes, this is a very data-driven approach. So whereas previously with the Mediterranean diet and using adherence scores, we're basically saying how well you align to this predefined pattern. We are not predefining anything. We're also not even predefining how many patterns we expect to see. So this is more getting a bit more technical, what we call a Bayesian approach. So what happens here is instead of typically with a latent class model, you might fit it with, say, two classes, three classes, four classes, on and on, and then do some sort of likelihood ratio test or post hoc testing to see which of those models would be the best fit. With this method, what we're doing instead is we are not making any predefinition. So we will have an uh, almost like an infinite number of clusters. So we give it a really, really large number. So maybe we'll say 50 clusters or 30 clusters. And then once it goes through the sampling algorithm, those empty patterns are just going to fall out and you'll just be left with the critical mass of patterns that remain. Okay, cool. And then is an analogous thing happening with race and ethnicity here and socioeconomics? Well, I guess you've already restricted. Yeah, so in this case, we have two levels, right? So the, the generalized U.S. patterns, that's what we're defining as our global level of clustering. And then at the subgroup level, that's that local level, we, that's the one thing we are predefining. How are we going to define what is called a localized uh, pattern? So we're defining our local patterns by, in this case, race and ethnicity. So we have Mexican-Americans in one local group, one local level. We have the uh, other Hispanic Americans, the non-Hispanic white Americans, non-Hispanic black and Asian American. 
uh, subgroups. And so from there, and so then what's going to happen in the algorithm is it's going to go through all of the foods that we've queried and decide, is the consumption of this food, is it something we're seeing across the whole population or is it something we're specifically only seeing with a certain subgroup? So for example, um, legumes was a very popular food that we saw amongst the Mexican-American group and also a little bit with the other Hispanic group compared to the others. And so in that case, you would see a higher consumption amongst those subgroups as opposed to the other subgroups. So there's three decisions of, you know, where does the food go? Of should it go on the global level or the local level? And then what do those patterns look like at those respective levels? So deciding what level it should go on, that's um, one of the figures I have where I talk about the probability of it being reflected at the U.S. level or specific to that race and ethnicity. And so what we found, at least with this data set, is that everything had a very low probability of being shared across all of the racial and ethnic groups. And so from that aspect, you can think of it as a stratified LCA because we pretty much had a clustering model then for each of the individual um, each of the individual racial and ethnic groups. Awesome. I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's, it's a little bit intuitive, I guess, at the end of the day, but I'm sure the math behind it is much harder to have everything flush out. It's a lot of Greek letters. I'll give you that much. <laughs> I, as a non-epidemiologist, I skimmed the, some of the method section just to be like, okay, yep. Uh. <laughs> You can define that local level differently. So I've, I've used this method on other, other papers where the subgroup was geography. So maybe it was like different states. And then um, in other cases, you might do by gender um, or you might do by different statuses or work statuses or marital status, things like that. Pretty much anything that you think might be modifying the differences in diet patterns, you can define as your subpopulation. Yeah. I mean, we talk a lot about now like precision nutrition, and I just can't help thinking that this is like something that's so essential for identifying sort of subgroups who might have certain behaviors that we think are more at risk or something that we need to intervene upon. And when it comes to diet, uh, the, uh, yeah, there's a lot of, I think, rightful critique of we keep pushing this like, you know, a, a very Mediterranean, I hear Mediterranean style diet all the time. And that obviously mm-hmm. lands on ears differently and is going to be enacted differently and may not be that like targeted of an intervention for most folks. And I I think it's important to remember that, you know, defining a healthy diet doesn't have to be a one size fits all. And I think that's the trap we've kind of fallen into um, when we're looking at U.S. nutrition is, you know, we just kind of go with what the majority is doing, but the U.S. is a melting pot of different cultures, different ethnicities and, how they're defining their diets looks different from everyone. And so, you know, one of the things that I found the most interesting was the the Asian American female diet, which was completely different than any of the other diets and was actually rather comparatively um, higher on like the healthy eating index of, of scores compared to the other groups. But a lot of times, one, you don't hear that when we're talking about low income adults, we kind of just kind of put them all into one big, large group and make one big, large assumption. And there is a lot of heterogeneity there. And there may be some healthy eating habits that we can learn from and we can use to help to improve their nutrition across the board. Awesome. 
Um, so you kind of brought up there the the healthy eating index. So what are some of the other outcomes you looked at besides just how these dietary patterns been and, and differ from each other? So I ran the patterns against different demographics. I think because of the fact that we have very localized patterns across the board with this data set, um, there is a lot of confounding that's controlled by the race and ethnicity. And so you, we were able to look at a, a few of the major cardiovascular cardiometabolic risk factors, so obesity, cholesterol, uh, blood pressure, hypertension, and uh, diabetes, uh, as well as smoking status. Um, but for the most part, we didn't run any regression analysis for that, as that's kind of more, a little bit more down the line, but this was more from an exploratory aspect for now. Yeah, definitely. And it makes me wonder, like, you know, you're just finding these things at such a local level. Is statistical power going to become an issue here that you just don't have enough coverage and enough diversity within of diet within these groups to really see strong diet disease risk factor associations? I know this is sort of the discovery cohort, but this is teeing you up for if you go to apply this in the future. Are there other data sets really large enough? To, yeah. To so the hope is yes. So right now, as you mentioned, because of the small size, we really didn't have multiple patterns within each race and ethnicity, right? We only had this one pattern that we just were able to see sort of distributions across these different foods. My hope is that I can kind of use this similar method to kind of pull from data sources that, that can give me that racial and ethnic heterogeneity. So, you know, there's data sets such as the Hispanic Community Health Studies, that would give me a wide range of different Hispanic and Latino ethnic backgrounds. Um, there's the Black Women's Health Study. Uh, there's, of course, the Nurses' Health Study, which we're all familiar with. And um, there's also, I'm, there's the Southern Community Cohort Study, and that kind of has lower, uh, lower SES participants and a little bit of some racial heterogeneity there. And so the hope is kind of if we can see more variety of diets with a more racially or ethnically homogenous group, then we can kind of take it from there to kind of see if we can kind of work our way and build upwards um, to kind of see, yes, are there some generalized patterns of maybe certain foods that we might see across all groups? And are there some more um, variety of what we can see individually? Awesome. I was also thinking as I was reading it, kind of going in the reverse direction, we often control for race and ethnicity in large epidemiological cohorts looking at a dietary exposure and an outcome. But this sort of suggests that there's like extreme collinearity between some dietary exposures and race ethnicity. And I think that race ethnicity variable is just so many, the proxy variable for so, so, so many things. So does, are there any caveats for folks moving forward as they that we can learn from these sort of analyses to say, okay, well, when you're looking at exposure between legumes and intake or whatever, should you be adjusting for race ethnicity or more careful about adjusting for race ethnicity to not like over adjust anything? This is my very non-epidemiologist uh, thought process here. <laughs> I think the biggest concern for me is more so the fact of the the interaction of foods that are consumed, which is kind of how we motivates us to do dietary patterns from other some other typical measures is that interaction is going to differ by race and ethnicity for different groups. So I feel like just adjusting for race in a more generalized model um, that's assuming that everyone is having the same uh, correlation structure, so the same interaction between those foods. And 
I think what this paper is kind of showing is that's not, that might not be true. And so we really can't just adjust for it. I think we really need to look at these different groups as their own separate entity and not try to lump them all together into one large group. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. It sounds like, you know, you're adjusting for race and ethnicity in larger cohorts. You'd need to imply, like, explicitly state a lot of specific interaction terms that we're currently not doing and uh, things just get washed over. So I think the thing is, my caution is really we don't want to assume that they have the same generalized interaction structure or correlation structure. Maybe they do, but I don't think we can make the assumption without at least checking. And so checking to see if the correlation structure is matched with each individual group. So what we saw with NHANES is that the interaction of the different foods and what is being consumed is different based off of the racial and ethnic group that we're looking at at one time. Awesome. I think that makes, you know, again, somewhat in intuitive sense, mathematically is, uh, I'm sure, a full semester course. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the other thing, with the use of NHANES, you know, you're relying on the, just more of a, a methods question. You're relying on one to two dietary recalls. Do you think, um, is that a limitation or a strength here? Because, I mean, FFQs are what a lot of cohorts use. And I was just thinking, like, I think FFQs can sometimes really wash over racial, ethnic, um, specific foods in a way. And you get a lot but just more specific detail in 24-hour recalls, whereas sometimes you're just checking a box and you, you miss a lot of the culture-specific uh, food preparation techniques there. So is that a strength, do you think, of NHANES, that you get this 24-hour recall data? Or do you think this will be readily utilizable with, with similar efficacy in an FFQ cohort? So I think this method can be used with either of the dietary assessment tools. I have used it actually with both. I think there's pros and cons to both, right? So if you're using the dietary recall, I think that's really great because you're really able to query the amount of food that's eaten and you get a little bit more of that granularity of specifically what foods are eaten. Whereas with the food frequency questionnaire, at least that's able to capture both a combination of foods that you occasionally ate and foods that you may frequently eat. Um, Just because it's gotten a larger time span, it does rely a little bit more on recall than we would see in the 24-hour recall. Um, So I think they both can give different different aspects of it. Um, And I think figuring out a way to use both. Um, Very few studies have both. I know the Hispanic Community Health Study has both um, and a couple other studies as well. Um, But I think, I think that's one of the, my personal challenge, but I feel like with the method, I don't think it plays a part, but I think it's going to come up to the decision of the researcher of what, what information is more important to them. Um, Because I feel like with the dietary recall, yes, you might catch the fact that, oh, I'm doing this recall in the summertime where the foods I eat might look very different than what I'm eating in the wintertime. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a great point. As with all self-reported dietary epi, every instrument has its benefits and its limitations. Nothing's uh, perfect. A lot more yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, is there anything else you wanted to reflect upon about this paper or any of the little key key gems that you saw as you went through it? I think for me, this paper really, 
I feel like it validated the direction I want to take my research. I feel like a lot of my research started out of the frustration of defining diet from a single majority and kind of feeling like I don't see myself in the data results. And when you know that studies lead to policy changes and interventions, what do you do when they've missed you? And so really being able to have a paper that illustrated there is a lot of heterogeneity that you might be missing if you're only focusing on one demographic. Um, And so really just the importance of acknowledging the diversity that makes up the United States to really inform not just the policy, but also the methods that we use in order to better inform that policy. Yeah, we've got the new Dietary Guidelines Committee was just announced, so hopefully they'll listen to this podcast. Somebody on it might and uh, pay attention to this. Uh, but I also was thinking, you know, that I, my mind initially went very federal, but then I was thinking, you know, even local and city level public health departments could, uh, depending on how much food recall data they're collecting, which varies, I think, quite a bit. But you know, you're often dealing. Just, I'm from Philadelphia, and just the racial, ethnic heterogeneity and socioeconomic status heterogeneity there is really huge just within the city and you kind of have these blanket public health nutrition messaging campaigns that I think are almost at the outset destined to miss the folks that are most likely to benefit from them without being much, much more targeted. Absolutely. I really think you need to meet people where they are. And I feel like Philadelphia, people that live in Philadelphia probably eat a little bit differently than people that live in, say, Austin, Texas, um, that might eat completely differently than people that live in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. So, you know, being able to, going at the local level, I think, is a really smart idea if you have the, the tools to really query of the diet and kind of seeing what, what do we have and then how can we improve from there? What are the good things we can take away and what are the things we can, how can we reduce some of the the I don't want to say bad decisions, but how can we do some of the less healthy decisions that we're making? And I think also thinking from a local level will also help with dealing with a lot of the food access and food security issues that we might see, particularly amongst low income, um, low income families. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're, yeah, I, I will validate that you are doing really awesome, important work. And I think that I hope that there are folks listening who reach out to you and, and want to continue expanding this work. Uh, I know the journal would love to see more of it. And I think all of American nutrition research could use some more of it. So thank you so much. Is there anything you want to plug? Are you looking for students or trainees or anything? I do. I do want to also give a big, huge shout out. As a statistician, I was very new to, I I kind of consider myself the statistician that plays in other people's playgrounds. So I do want to shout out my co-author, Walter Willett, who was instrumental for helping me unpack and understand dietary assessment tools, as well as trying to understand nutrition in general and nutrition epidemiology. Um, I feel like I've kind of had a crash course since I've come to Harvard and and working with him has been an amazing opportunity. I will give a plug as I am currently hiring for postdoc trainees and uh, as well as summer research trainees. So if anyone is interested in working with dietary methods and working with particularly low income and minority populations, I would love to work with you. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely, I'll, uh, commune with you offline to get any links and relevant things to put here in the show notes. But 
Uh, do you have any social media handles or anything to plug? Yes, my Twitter handle is at BJK Stevenson. So S T E P H E N S O N. So you can find me on Twitter. Awesome. And we will put you in the that in the show notes as well so that folks can follow you and amplify your work and, and interact. And I think that gosh, social media nutrition sometimes is just a, a little bit of a dumpster fire. And so interjecting some hardcore stats and methods discussions as well as some of these really important issues I think will be uh, much much needed in the sort of diet war elements of social media fantastic <laughs> look forward to it <laughs> always armed and ready <laughs> <laughs> thank you for coming on and for uh, publishing in the journal and uh, we look forward to seeing more of your manuscripts hopefully with a postdoc who's listening right now sounds good thank you so much for having me